Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 3, reading together verses 27 through 31. Romans 3, 27 through 31. This is God's Word. Paul writes, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Father God, we have heard your word. We desire to understand it. We desire to apply it to our lives, to live in the light of it. So would you come now by your spirit and would you cause this word to pierce deeply, this sharp word, sharper than a two-edged sword. And would it come and would it break our hard hearts? Would it reveal to us our sin? Would it show us our need for a savior? And would it teach us how we might walk in light of your great salvation? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may have heard of the website or the app called IFTT, I-F-T-T-T. It stands for If This, Then That. Uh, You may have used this. It's an online service that connects your, your online accounts and your smart devices to one another so that you can automate certain things in your life. Uh, If this thing happens over here, then through IFT, that will happen over there. So, for instance, you can connect your Facebook account and your Dropbox account so that anytime someone tags you in a picture on Facebook, it'll automatically save it in your Dropbox folder, right? Maybe you want to do that. Or sort of the, the, you know, the ridiculous, you can connect your Domino's account uh, to your Instagram account. So anytime you post hashtag hangry, it will automatically order Domino's pizza, right? I have no idea why you'd want to do that, but it can be done. Now, to to some of you, uh, this is what you love about the internet, right? It makes life simple and automatic and and just connects everything. For others of you, it is like your worst privacy nightmare, right? There's no way you're going to give all your account information to some third-party software. Now, I have no idea what the Apostle Paul would have thought about IFT, but I do know that Paul loved what undergirds that website. He loves this reality of, of logic and the, the, the if-then statement that is at the bottom of that website. He loves it. We see it throughout his letters. We see Paul connecting the dots and, and saying in all of his writings in a variety of ways, if this is true, then this thing should be true also. This should follow. This should happen. Now notice I'm using the word should. There's no should with if. If you 
post hashtag hangry, you're getting pizza, right? But with Paul, he knows that we are not machines. We are not computers. We're not robots. We're humans. We're made in God's image. We're sinful. And what that means is that nothing happens automatically. Nothing happens sort of unconsciously. Our minds, our wills must be engaged deliberately, on purpose, intentionally, consciously. We must choose to do the things that Paul says, if this, then that. Now, in our text this morning, Paul is taking the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. And through a series of rhetorical questions, Paul is showing us that there are three things that do in fact follow from the gospel and should follow in our lives as we seek to live according to the gospel. If the gospel is true, and it is, if the gospel is true, then here is what that truth must mean in the lives of those who claim to be disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. Well, first, Paul tells us that if the gospel is true, then humility must follow. Humility must follow. Paul has just written beautifully and powerfully in verses 21 to 26 about the righteousness of God that comes to sinners through Jesus Christ. We are justified by grace, Paul says, through faith, through the redemption that is found in Christ Jesus, through his redeeming and propitiating work. That's what Paul has laid out for us there in verses 21 to 26. And now he draws an inference in the form of a question. Then what becomes of our boasting, he asks? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Do you hear what Paul is saying? As a result of the gospel, all pride before God and for man is expelled. All arrogance is evicted. All boasting and bragging is banished. All self-congratulation, all patting oneself on the back, all comparing oneself to someone else, it's done away with. It's kicked to the curb. It's shut out. It's thrown out. And by implication, humility, self-renunciation, poverty of spirit, meekness of heart, self-denial are brought in the believer's life. God's free justification by grace through faith, says Paul, results in a humble people who know they don't deserve any of the richness that is theirs in Christ. But they boast only in what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. If the gospel, then humility. But but just in case Paul isn't clear, notice that he wants to make sure that we know who the bouncer is, right, that kicks pride out. He asked that question in verse 27, by what kind of law? Now, when he uses the word law there, he doesn't mean law in the sense of commandments that God has revealed as his will for all creatures, the way that he does use the word law there at the end of verse 28. Remember, we saw last week that Paul can use the word law in different senses, and we have to understand the sense in which he's using it. Rather, when he asked that question, by what kind of law, He means law in the sense of principle or or system, sort of like the way we speak of the law of gravity, right? It's this principle, it's this this reality that is out there. Well, here Paul's asking, is boasting excluded by a law, a, a principle of works that says, look, if you try to do your best 
if you try to be a decent person, if you try to you know, just really be good, then God will save you. Is that the, the principle that excludes boasting? Absolutely not. Right? That sort of principle, that, that works principle, that, 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 that law of works, that, that principle of works that says goodness equals salvation, that principle is actually the grounds for boasting, isn't it? If you believe that you are saved by your works, then of course you have grounds on which to boast, especially in comparison to all the rest of the people who didn't try quite hard enough, right? who weren't quite good enough, who weren't quite decent enough. No, Paul tells us the bouncer that excludes boasting is the law, the, the principle of faith. And he plainly restates it there in verse 28. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In that verse, you have the gospel in a nutshell. There it is. And that is the source of all humility. Now, you, you don't see the word alone there, do you, in verse 28? And, and yet, though it's not explicit, it clearly is implicit. We hold that one is justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law. There are, are no works that can be smuggled into our salvation as the source of salvation. Faith alone is the instrument through which the ungodly are reconciled to God, are declared right with God, are justified with no contribution from human effort whatsoever. And this gospel truth leads to humility. Why? Because saving faith is just an empty hand. Saving faith is an empty hand that brings nothing to the Lord but its own need, relying solely on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Faith receives, it does not achieve. Faith is humble from the very beginning. It takes none of the credit, but gives all glory to God who grants the gift of righteousness. We can't even boast in our own faith. Have you, have you thought about this before? If you believe in Jesus Christ, why do you believe? It's not because you were smarter than the person next to you. It's not because you were wiser or because you were better or more godly or more righteous. You believe your faith itself is a gift of grace. You haven't earned it. You haven't merited it. You haven't caused it. You haven't created it. You believe because God, by his sovereign power, has caused you to be born again. He has regenerated you. And through that effectual calling and through your regeneration, he has given you the gift of faith. You have been enabled to repent and to believe. It has been granted to you as you see throughout the New Testament. Your eyes have been opened to see your utter need, to see the beauty of Christ's atoning work on the cross and his perfect righteousness. And he has given you the ability to come to him. No one can come to him. Unless the Father who sent him draws you. But if you have come, it's because the Father has drawn you. The Father has given you the gift of faith. That should lead you to humility, even in the act of faith. Paul's point is this. The gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, crushes all pride. It crushes all boasting. And it creates a humility within us more and more. And so as you look at your own heart, to whatever degree you possess a smug spirit of self-satisfaction, of comparison with others, 
To that degree, you are not understanding the gospel of grace. To that degree, you are not walking in line with the gospel. You are not letting the gospel shape and mold you. This principle works both ways, doesn't it? As you think of this truth that, that a, a, a principle of works uh, always will, will lead to pride, so pride will always be a telltale sign right, that you are living, operating, functioning according to a principle of works and your relationship with God and your relationship with other people. And the same is true with the gospel and humility. If you believe the gospel, you will become a more humble person. If you see any degree of humility in your life, it's because you are operating according to the gospel. There's no better illustration of what Paul is saying here than Jesus' parable in, in Luke chapter 18. You remember where Luke says that Jesus tells this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on others with contempt. Right? Pride before God will always lead to pride before man. If you, if you puff yourself up in relation to God, you will always despise your neighbor. So Jesus says, two men went down to the temple or went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I'm not like the swindlers, the unjust, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I pay tithes on all that I get. I fast twice a week. Hear the pride in his prayer, his boasting before God. As if God owes him, God is, ought to be happy to have him on his team. But then Jesus tells us of the tax collector who did not lift up his eyes to heaven, stood some distance away and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And then Jesus gives the punchline. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, the, the one who was in cahoots with the Roman authorities that everyone knew was, was stealing from his own countrymen, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Faith is an expression of humility, and it leads to an ever-increasing humility. How did Isaac Watts put it? He said, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss. And what? Pour contempt on all my pride. If the gospel, then humility. But secondly, Paul tells us here in this text, if the gospel, then a multi-ethnic vision. You see, one of the ways that pride has manifested itself throughout the history of the world, even in the history of the church, is in this pride of ethnicity a pride of culture, a pride of nationality. I'm better than you are because of the color of my skin, because of where my ancestors came from, because of the intellectual and technological and religious advances of my culture relative to yours, because of the privileges of the place where I am from, where I am born. And so in verse 29, look at what Paul does. He moves to another set of rhetorical questions to ferret out these expressions of pride in the hearts of God's people. Just as the gospel leads to humility, so the gospel should lead to a multi-ethnic vision that sees every believer in Jesus as equally a brother or a sister in him, no matter what might separate us, humanly speaking. What does he say? Or, verse 29, 
Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Here Paul is assuming the the first principle of Jewish and Christian monotheism. God is one. There's one God. And since there is only one God who has created everyone on this earth in his image, then what that means is that no one people group has a monopoly on this one God. No one people group can say he is our exclusive property. He is our God and not yours. No, God is not the God only of a small number of those he has created. He is the God of men and women and boys and girls from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, including both the Jews who could trace their their biological, genealogical ancestry back to Abraham and to the Gentiles who could not. Just as Paul's told us in Romans 3, 23, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all equally sinners. So now he is saying there is no distinction in everyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are all equally justified by grace through faith in him. God is the God of Jews who believe in Jesus and of Gentiles who believe in Jesus. In Jesus, regardless of whether you receive the sign of, of circumcision, the sign of the old covenant or not, justification is by faith alone. And so Paul is saying, if the gospel is true, then this multi-ethnic vision, this multi-ethnic passion to see the gospel go to all nations ought to fill our hearts. This truth of the gospel changes everything Paul is saying and the way we relate to those around us. He, he touches on this now, and he's going to come back to it later on the, in the letter. But do you realize how radical this was in Paul's day to say the things that he's saying here? It, it was radical, to, even to the point that as you read through the book of Acts, the church did not get this right away. Right? It, it took time. It took years for the church to to come to grips and to understand the ramifications of this truth that Paul is laying out for us here. Think of the tensions that arose in Acts chapter 6 between the the Jews who had adopted sort of a Greek culture to the Hebraic Jews who had rejected that culture. They're both Jews, but their cultures are different, and so they're fighting. The the widows of of the one group were not being uh, cared for by the leaders of the other group. Or think of in Acts chapter 10, how the apostle Peter had to be shown by God in a vision that he ought not to call any man unclean or unholy. Or think about how in Acts chapter 15, 49 AD, many years after Jesus had died and risen from the dead, there was this huge theological blow up over whether believers in Jesus also had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And in Galatians 2, we read that even the apostle Peter, before that great council in Jerusalem, had lived in a way that didn't always match his gospel theology. He still, for a season, refused to eat and to drink with Gentiles because he was a Jew and they were Gentiles. Now, Paul's theology, or Peter's theology was pristine. He, he gives it to us in Acts chapter 10 when he says, I most certainly understand that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, The man who fears God and does what is right is welcome to him. And yet how easy it was for 
Peter to walk out of line with that gospel, to deny with his behavior toward others what he affirmed with his lips about justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. So you see, when, when we say that, that if the gospel, then this glorious multi-ethnic vision ought to be ours, we say that and Paul is putting this out here because it's not always the case. Just as it was difficult for even the apostle Peter to, to live in line with this gospel, so it is with us. We can affirm the truth with our lips, right? that there is no black or white in the gospel. There is no rich or poor in the gospel. And yet we can deny it with our lives. The gospel should be molding and shaping within us a multi-ethnic vision. We here at Pear Orchard have, have caught a glimpse of this vision, haven't we? Over the years, we've said, even before I got here eight years ago, the, the session of this church has said, we want to become a multi-ethnic church. We want to be a church that reflects the community in which we live. But how are we doing? How are you doing? You're here. You, you say you want to be a part of a church that has this vision. How are you doing with this? How are you thinking about this? How do you think we are thinking about this as a church? I wonder when we called Dean to be our associate pastor some four years ago, did you assume that your work at reaching out to our diverse community and neighborhoods was done? And now it was sort of Dean's job? Kind of check off the black pastor box and be like, whew, good thing we're glad we're done with that. All right, let's move on to other things. Is that the way that we have thought about this? Is it Dean's job to go reach out to black and Hispanic and Asian and Indian folks? Or is it our job as the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, because we've been captured by this vision that Paul is setting forth for us here on the basis of the gospel? You know, Dean got here in 2018. Since he arrived, we have gone through a year-plus-long pastoral succession, right? announced and sort of worked through and eventually took place. COVID's hit. There's been increasing polarization on sort of every level around our country. And all of this has taken attention. All of it is, has distracted us from our ability and even perhaps our desire to, to minister as easily as we might to those who are not like us. But is this an excuse? Have you thought about these things? Now, God has been kind, hasn't he, over these past years to give us many opportunities to reach out to our neighbors. He has even made us more diverse in beautiful and glorious ways. But has your zeal, personally, to be a multi-ethnic congregation, has it waned these years? Has it lessened? As you think about your desire that perhaps if you were here before Dean came, when we were talking about these things, has your desire to reflect the, the diversity of the kingdom of God, the diversity of our own neighborhoods, to know and to love and to serve your neighbors across ethnic and cultural and national lines, has it flagged? Maybe it has. Well, guess what? Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. It's a holiday. It, it, maybe it's a time for you to, to, to reread or to read for the first time King's letter from the Birmingham jail or reread his I Have a Dream speech or go to the Civil Rights Museum or think about with your spouse, what are ways that we can reach the neighbors in our community, in our neighborhood that aren't like us? 
Maybe don't just think about it. Maybe do something about it even tomorrow. You see, there is this global, universal, multi-ethnic vision that's not just a passing fad. It's not something driven by political correctness or wokeness. It's a gospel imperative. It's a gospel fruit. God is the God of Jews and Gentiles, says Paul, of whites and blacks and browns of white collars and blue collars, of the cultured elites, the junior leaguers and the Cajuns and the rednecks. He's a God of rebels and bulldogs and tigers. He's a God of boomers and millennials and Gen Zers. Whatever human distinctions we can come up with, God says, if you believe in Jesus Christ, I am your God, which means that you are all my people together amidst all your human distinctions. And therefore, This human distinguishing everything that we use to divide us has been torn down by the gospel of Jesus Christ, torn down by the blood of the cross, by the righteousness of Jesus imputed to sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So if the gospel, then humility. If the gospel, then a multi-ethnic vision. And lastly, Paul tells us in this text that if the gospel, then obedience. You see it there in verse 31. He asks one more rhetorical question. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What Paul is doing here is anticipating in sort of summary fashion, uh, something that he's going to anticipate again in, in deeper fashion later on in the letter, particularly in chapters 6 to 8 and 12 and 13. It's this objection But it's an objection that is such a dangerous distortion of the truth of the gospel that he knows he cannot grant it even for a moment. Do we overthrow the law by this faith? That is, if justification by faith alone is true, apart from works of the law, then are we actually nullifying the law? Are we invalidating the law? Are, Are we saying, look, the law is pointless. It doesn't matter. It has no place in the Christian life any longer. If Paul is opposing law and faith then are they absolutely opposed? Are they categorically opposite of one another? And you see Paul's answer, by no means. On the contrary, far from overthrowing and nullifying the law, actually we uphold the law, he says. The gospel is not antinomian. What does that word mean? Anti, against, nomian, nomos, law. The gospel is not anti the law. No, the gospel far from leading to licentiousness and lawlessness to this spirit that says, hey, we can do whatever we want now because we're justified by grace through faith. The gospel comes and says, so what do you want to do now that you're justified by grace through faith? Yes, you can do whatever you want. What do you want? You want to serve him. You want to obey him. You want to live for him. The gospel doesn't lead to disobedience, but to obedience. It doesn't lead to a low view of the law, but to a high view of the law. Both is that which continually shows you as a Christian your sin and your need for Jesus and the beauty of the righteousness of Christ that has saved us. But also as the standard, the the rule for our living, the standard according to which God is, is molding and shaping us by his Holy Spirit who indwells us into the image of Jesus Christ. See, what Paul is going to show us throughout this letter is that the law will drive us 
to the gospel. It will drive us to Jesus, but Jesus will then in turn drive us back to the law so that we might see how we are to live. But he doesn't just drive us back to the law sort of to be killed by it again. He drives us back to the law that, that we might come to it with the ability and the desire through faith in Jesus Christ to keep it. Paul's going to say in Romans chapter 8 that the law was powerless by itself even to ensure that we could fulfill its righteous requirements. The law couldn't even enable us to keep itself. But the gospel, because of Jesus' finished and ongoing work by his Holy Spirit, the gospel enables obedience. The gospel upholds the law, therefore, as Paul says, more than the law can uphold itself. We are justified by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Or as James puts it in chapter 2, faith without works is dead faith. It's not genuine faith. It's, it's not saving faith. Right? Faith works through love. Or as Paul, in his classic passage in Ephesians 2, puts it all together, right? by grace you've been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. He's prepared us beforehand for these works. If the gospel, then obedience so you see these three things, if the gospel humility, if the gospel a multi-ethnic vision, if the gospel obedience, these are what flow out of as fruit of the gospel. Maybe you've heard of that, uh, that logical fallacy called post hoc ergo propter hoc. Have you ever heard of this before? The Latin words mean uh, after this, post hoc, after this, therefore, ergo, because of this, propter hoc. It occurs when someone thinks, well, because this thing happened after that thing, therefore it happened because of that thing. All right, politicians do this all the time, don't they? You know, or you, you see it in politics where people will say, look, after so-and-so was elected, the economy tanked or the economy blew up. It's because they were elected. Like, well, no, maybe, but maybe not. Or you see athletes do it. I, re- I wore these red socks and like made every bucket. I'm wearing those red socks every game, right? Post hoc, ergo propter hoc. After that, therefore, because of that. It's not true. It's a fallacy, right? Correlation doesn't always imply causation. But here's the thing. When it comes to what we've been looking at this morning, when we think about the gospel and humility and a multi-ethnic vision and obedience, correlation does imply causation. Post hoc, ergo propter hoc. Yes, it is true. The gospel always leads to humility and a multi-ethnic vision and obedience. The gospel of Jesus does cause these things in our lives. It's the only thing that can cause these things. Where else can true humility, true and lasting reconciliation between people who have nothing else in common, true and lasting obedience from the heart, where else can these things come from? If you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation this morning, then it's not just that you must put to death pride and and disdain for or indifference toward those of other ethnicities or nationalities and a lawless spirit. It's not just that you must do this. You should do this, but you will do this because the Holy Spirit dwells within you. 
God is at work. He is going to complete the good work that he has begun in you. This is our confidence. This is our hope. This is our joy as the people of God. This is our pursuit as the people of God. If the gospel, then humility, then a multi-ethnic vision, then obedience. May God make it so. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for these words that so clearly set forth for us how the gospel is changing us and ought to change us and will change us. Lord, we confess with every believer that has ever lived that we do not walk in line with the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would come, that you would humble us, that you would open our eyes to see those around us who are not like us, who believe in Jesus just like we do, or perhaps who don't yet believe in Jesus, who need to believe in Jesus. Oh Lord, please give us a heart for them. Lord, give us a passion for purity and obedience. Lord, help us not to live as if the gospel nullifies and invalidates and overthrows the law. Help us to live as if the gospel does indeed uphold the law, which it does. So Lord, please come by your spirit and may the fruit of this glorious truth that we are justified freely as a gift, that you give us righteousness freely through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, that you reckon his righteousness to our account through faith. Lord, would this glorious truth change us in every way. Father, you alone can do it. And so we pray that through the preaching of your word, even through the visible word and the sign of baptism this morning, Lord, would you remind us what our cleansing in Jesus Christ means for us. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.